Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we're continuing our series in the prophets and specifically the book of Daniel. And here we have a discussion of the second half of Daniel chapter 4. If you've been helped or sharpened by this podcast, we'd love for you to take a few moments and leave us a review on iTunes. It really helps to get our content on Bible, liturgy, and culture to a wider audience. With that, we really hope that you enjoy this episode, and we want to thank you so much for listening. And here are Peter Lightheart, Jeffrey Myers, Alistair Roberts, and James B. John discussing Daniel chapter 4. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Alistair Roberts, with Jeff Myers, and with James B. John. Ryan Motes, as usual, is in the background making sure that everything gets recorded and edited and smoothed out to, to go out to you, our listeners. We are in the middle of a series on prophetic literature and specifically doing a series through the book of Daniel. Uh, last episode, we started Daniel 4, and we were inching our way through Daniel 4 and got through about half of the account. We agreed that this is an account of Nebuchadnezzar's conversion. That's a that's a controversial point for some Christians, but that seems to be the both the uh, thrust of this chapter itself, where Nebuchadnezzar ends the chapter praising, exalting, and honoring the King of Heaven, which has been identified as the God of God of Daniel. And God Most High is the name that uh, Gentiles often use for Yahweh in the Old Testament. So within Daniel, we have that that uh, within Daniel four rather we have that uh, conversion that's the climax of the story. And then we also have been looking how the, at how the stories about Nebuchadnezzar are moving forward and how they're forming a, a sequence, a series of events, uh, not always having to do directly with Nebuchadnezzar, but gradually focusing down on him. Uh, in chapter four, we have Nebuchadnezzar as the focal point of God's action. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar himself is going through this death and resurrection experience. That happens in the aftermath of a dream that he has. He sees a dream of this imperial tree that is large, strong, reaches to the sky, reaches to heaven. All the animals are beneath it, shaded beneath it, finding food from the tree, finding shade in the tree. The birds of the air are finding nest, place to nest in the branches of the tree. Uh, this is a, a great imperial tree, similar to the image that Jesus uses later on to describe the kingdom of heaven as being like a mustard seed. Uh, that's the smallest among the seas, but then it grows into a great imperial tree that fills the earth. And the nations are going to come like the like the beasts and the birds and find their shelter there. But this tree, which represents Nebuchadnezzar, is cut down and he's cast out from among men and he's given the heart of a beast in place of the heart of a man. And that's basically where we had, that's as far as we had gotten in the story. And I think I raised the question last time about the watchers or the awakened ones that are mentioned uh, in verse 13, there's an awakened one or a watcher, a holy one who descends from heaven to announce what's going to happen to the tree. And there's a reference to that again later on that there's a decree uh, that has come from the angelic watchers in verse 17. This sentence is by decree of the watchers a decision at the command of the holy ones in order that the living might know that the most high is ruler of the realm of mankind. Uh, and we we didn't really discuss the, the watchers very much. So um, let's start there. Who are these characters? Who are this? Who are the watchers, the holy ones that are introduced here? And they're going to be brought back in later on in Daniel in various capacities. So what kind of theology of watchers or uh, holy ones do we get out of the book of Daniel? I mean, 
One thing we can think about is that later in the book, we've got uh, people like the Prince of Persia mentioned and the Prince of Greece, who appear to be angelic forces tied to particular uh, nations or empires. And so I guess we could think about this as, as an equivalent, like a, a kind of Prince of Babylon in angelic terms. Hmm. Um, just a, a side note, uh, some commentators will uh, point to this, uh, uh, especially Nebuchadnezzar's use of the word watchers rather than angels as being evidence of his um, of his paganism, of his uh, uh, his uh, you know commitment to this kind of language, and yet Daniel uses that also. Daniel talks about the watcher in verse twenty three. So it's a simple point, but the watcher, the holy one, surely is an angel from heaven. Just another way to describe it. So I guess the, your your question, Peter, is why is an angel being described being uh, designated as a watcher. Yeah, let's say that was my question. That's my question. Too. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I understand that the, the term can mean either watcher or awakened one. Within the story, there's a, there's a contrast between Nebuchadnezzar, who's seeing visions on his bed in his mind, verse 10. He mentions his bed several times, verse 13 again. So, there's a Nebuchadnezzar is receiving this disturbing image and disturbing announcement on his bed in his sleep. Uh, and the watcher is an awakened one who's bringing, uh, interpreting the message or bringing the message. So, that at least there's that contrast. And I think too of the, the idea of watching the watchers in the, uh, in the tabernacle. I mean, the, the story of uh, Aaron's budding rod, which buds with almond blossoms. And um, there's a pun in, in the story on almond and watcher. And what uh, what Aaron is being desi- he's being designated as the one who keeps watch within the tabernacle. It's a different word. I don't think it's even a related word, but you have the same kind of idea of a, a priestly watcher in that case. You have an angelic watcher in this case who's guarding, kind of cherubic guarding, perhaps uh, maybe too a kind of surveillance going to and fro on the earth and watching what happens, reporting back. In this case, the watcher is making an announcement from heaven and bringing it down to earth. On that wordplay, we also have the um, first vision of Jeremiah, which has a similar wordplay with the almond rod. Right. One of the things we pick up here is the idea that the the watchers have some kind of capacity to issue decrees, it seems. Verse 17, this sentence is by decree of the watchers. It's a decision, is the command of the holy ones. It's plural. So, there's a, there's a council of watchers who apparently deliberate and decide they're carrying out the decrees of the Most High, surely, but uh, there's still some kind of decision-making, seems to be some kind of decision-making determination by the, by the watchers themselves. So, this points to an old world angelic governance over not just Israel, but over the nations. We might think, for instance, of um, come, let us go down, and they're confused, their language, um, and also the angels that go down in chapter 18 of Genesis to see whether the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah was grounded in their actual behavior. Mm-hmm. Right. So, there you have an- angels who are doing a kind of scrutiny of Sodom. They're doing surveillance to determine whether Sodom deserves to be destroyed. That's not the same 
same function that this watcher is playing here, but it it may have something to do with the the, the title that's given to them. Is that what you had in mind, Jeff? You said something about old world governance. What, what did you mean by that? Um, just before Jesus ascends into heaven as a new Adam and um, has dominion, the old Adam relinquished it to angels. Uh, he was supposed to guard the garden, but of course he falls, and then there are angelic guardians. And so there appears to be all through the... Uh, old world until Jesus, angelic um, guardians, watchers, governing. Uh, also, also Paul tells us in First mm, Corinthians 8 that the idols that the nations of Gentiles worship are actually demons. So there's a demonic and an angelic overlordship in the world. Uh, that's what I was thinking of. Right, right. I mean, do, do you think we might also have here something to do with the fact that Yahweh is uniquely, I guess, the judge of Israel. And so we don't get watchers passing judgment on Israel when she stumbles, but we do get it in the case of Gentile nations in a sort of Deuteronomy 32 sense that God chose Israel as his own and kind of abandoned the nations to their own gods mm. and, and so forth. Mm. Yeah, that makes. I think that makes sense that uh, Yahweh is a direct or the angel of Yahweh perhaps. Um, which I'd take as kind of a, a chief of the angels, chief of the watchers is the one who uh, watches over Israel, but then it's assigned to other to other angelic beings during the old covenant. And I just want to reiterate something that Jeff said, which I think I, I agree with. That there's a, it does seem to me that there's a shift. This is one of the things that I argued for in my Revelation commentary. That part of, part of the arc of Revelation is a move from angelic. Uh, angelic worship and angelic rule to human rule. So you have the ancient ones, the presbyteroi, the presbyters, you know, they're having a presbytery meeting in heaven, Jeff, they're having a presbytery meeting in heaven. That's what you've got to look forward to. They're having, there's a, yeah, the well, <laughs> it's not as boring as the ones on earth. <laughs> you, have the, you have the presbyteroi in the, in heaven who cast down their crowns. They leave their thrones. And the next time we see, uh, rulers in heaven, it's in, in uh, Revelation twenty, which are the the martyrs. So you have this you have this shift from angelic oversight to human oversight, angelic rule to human rule. Hebrews, uh, I think, hints at this by talking about uh, human beings for for a little while were lower than the angels, but now Jesus is exalted above the angels, and we're in Him, so we're positioned above the angels, and are destined to judge angels. So there. Sometimes when angelic divine councils are discussed, that important shift uh, which occurs at, uh, with the work of Jesus, that's missed. And I think that's really important to stress. Mm. Yeah. I wonder if part of what's going on here is that Nebuchadnezzar is going to be, by virtue of these words and so on, going to become aware of just how vast the heavenly realms are. So he obviously sees himself as on top of the world. And in human terms, he is. You know, he's got that whole ancient Near East at his feet, you know, but he's going to become aware not only of the fact that there is a most high God to whom he's accountable, but that there are just innumerable numbers of sort of heavenly creatures and ordinances and, and so forth, infinitely more mighty and powerful than, than him. And he's just a, yeah, a very small piece on the board. Mm. Mm. Yeah, good point. Daniel here does his duty as a prophet 
uh, even though he's alarmed at what he hears uh, and what he knows the the uh, dream is and the interpretation, he nevertheless is honest with Nebuchadnezzar and tells him exactly what the meaning is and also is not afraid to give him counsel about what he needs to do. And again, functioning as a prophet, he hears this and he knows it doesn't have to come to pass exactly as he might think it does. You know, it's possible that Nebuchadnezzar could repent and do what Daniel says in verse 27, and the outcome uh, might be significantly different. And so Daniel, again, shows himself to be a very faithful, wise, and courageous prophet to the king. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think Jeff pointed out last time round that Daniel's um, thoughts are described in the same way in verse 19 as Nebuchadnezzar's are um, originally. He's dismayed and his thoughts are said to kind of run away with him. I, I know it from sort of rabbinic texts to, to do with sort of fantasies when your mind just runs away from you, that, that particular word. And he genuinely has um, a concern, doesn't he, for Nebuchadnezzar. We don't have the wise men having this same reaction. And when he says, uh, let not the dream or the interpretation – oh, sorry, when he says, may the dream be for those who hate you, um, I think that's a sincere wish, isn't it? As a associate of Nebuchadnezzar's, he, he doesn't want, in human terms, to see the king um, suffer. you know. And, and so he does have a genuine concern. Right. That fits with what I said last time, the the use of the name Belteshazzar uh, for Daniel. So he's functioning as a member of the court. And so he's reacting because he's he is, in fact, even though he's a Jew, he's in fact part of that part of that uh, part of that court and he, he he hopes for its good and its flourishing. And more particularly, his close association with Nebuchadnezzar means that if Nebuchadnezzar is brought down, he is probably threatened too. It is likely that he was a eunuch. And a eunuch has their lot completely thrown in with the fortunes of the kingdom that they serve. They don't have a legacy of their own family. And so if Nebuchadnezzar goes down, he goes down in many respects. And then along with that, there's the fact that he's one of the highest officials in the land. And if Nebuchadnezzar is overthrown, then presumably that means that he's going down too. And add to that... Uh, he understands that the, the fate of Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar now is it, it's 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 uh, bound up with Israel as well, because mm. Nebuchadnezzar is and the Babylonian Empire is God's new way of organizing the kingdom, uh, and even the vision here of this tree, where all all the birds of the heaven and the beasts of the field find uh, life in its branches. It's kind of a tree of life for uh, not just all the nations, but for Israel as well. Mm-hmm. So that the tree comes down, that spells disaster all around. Yeah. Yeah. Good points. I wonder if uh, verse 16 has been uh, intriguing to me um, as I've studied for this. The word that's translated in my New American Standard as mind is uh, heart. But instead of the Hebrew lev, it's levav, which is I think uh, Alistair made this point that sometime back that uh, that's uh, it's Babel spelled backwards. So the change the change in his heart from that of a man to the to the heart of a beast. The change of Nebuchadnezzar implies uh, maybe the pun has to do with the 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 fact that that implies the change of Babylon. Then the fall of Babylon is bound up in the fall of this particular king. 
Hmm. Right. Related to that, Peter, we, we often get this term, the visions of my head, In um, we get that in verse 13 and yeah. 5 and 10. And, I mean, it seems a bit redundant in the sense that, I mean, of course they're going to be of, of your head. I wonder if kind of part of the purpose is to hmm. um, relate it back to the fact that Nebuchadnezzar is the head of the image um, that we've seen, the Colossus, and that this whole situation is affecting him now. Um Precisely because he's in charge of God's people. Mm. Previously, he was just the king of a pagan nation, separate from God's covenant and plans and all the rest of it. Um, but now these dreams have started to come into his head, as they did Balaam's, I guess, another Mesopotamian, um, because he's come into contact with a, a new God and, and all the rest of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It is important to think about the relationship between the king and the people and empire that he represents. We can talk about um, England and France meeting each other in their monarchs, um, the way that the king stands for the entire people. And when something befalls the king that's a terrible crisis, it's a crisis for the whole people. We might think Mm -hmm. about the story of Job, which is often misread as just a personal um, series of misfortunes that occur to this individual who's a wealthy man. But Job is the chief of his people, and what happens to him is a crisis for the entire people. Um, there are people, I mean, on the obvious surface level, there are people who've lost their wives and, and their husbands and their children. There's um, a complete disaster for the local economy because the person who's really supporting so much of it has lost much of his wealth. But this is also the leader of the people. Now, in the case of Nebuchadnezzar, is that multiplied many times over, raised to a number of higher levels. Nebuchadnezzar's seeming downfall at this point is a crisis for the entire empire and also shows the weakness of the empire in its incredible human frailty. There's always something about humanity that is improbable in rule. We might think about Psalm 8 and the description of man is made a little lower than the angels, but that is a marvelous act of God that he has lifted man up and that he visits him. Whereas by all rights, God would entirely ignore humankind. Mankind just doesn't have that sort of natural significance. And in the case of Nebuchadnezzar, we're seeing Nebuchadnezzar almost cut down to his natural proportions. He's one of the creatures, um, but yet he has been, by God's grace, lifted up to this position of high authority and the kingdom and empire that he represents more generally. The chronology of the story is uh, interesting. You have the first 27 verses are all taking place in a fairly short span of time. Nebuchadnezzar is uh, talking about the dream that he has. He meets with his magicians and then with Daniel, and then Daniel interprets the dream. You imagine that's a, that's a matter of a couple of days of activity. Uh, and then uh, after Daniel's exhortation to break away from his sins and to do righteousness and show mercy to the poor, you have an entire year lapse between verses 27 and 29. There's no indication about whether Nebuchadnezzar took Daniel's counsel and acted on it. It seems like whatever whatever he was doing in the intervening 12 months, 
he hasn't learned the lesson he was supposed to learn because he's still boasting of his own might and glory and power and majesty in verse 30, 12 months after he was given this exhortation. So, it's curious that we we leap over that. And the, and the seven periods of time that are part of the vision don't start until that year passes. So, that's an unusual, I'm taking that as an accurate portrayal of how things actually unfolded, but it's it's an interesting gap between the initial vision and the crisis and then the fulfillment of the dream. You wonder if Nebuchadnezzar still remembered the dream 12, uh, 12 months later. Uh, surely it would have faded some from his from his memory and his alarm his alarm would have uh, would have faded a bit. So do you think that's space for repentance? Well, I wonder. Yeah, I wonder if that's uh, yeah, a space for repentance to see, you know, may, maybe Nebuchadnezzar will act on Daniel's instructions and then the humbling will not have to take place. Yeah, but uh, obviously it still does have to take place. Is there another way to read the gap than to see it see it as a you know here's here's some time for Nebuchadnezzar to act on on these uh, this advice uh, in his little book uh, Thy Kingdom Come R J Rushdie suggests that uh, Nebuchadnezzar did take action to try to correct the abuses in his kingdom I don't know what uh, what the basis what the uh, evidence for that is but uh, obviously has not. He's not fully humbled himself before the Lord, but uh, he has some he has some quotations from decrees of Nebuchadnezzar that uh, uh, he thinks give evidence of some kind of response. Which is curious that there's nothing said about that uh, about what the immediate response is uh, from Nebuchadnezzar. I wonder whether we're right to read verse seventeen as a suggestion that almost a qualification for rule is or the fittingness of the lowliest of men for rule. I think maybe back of um, Numbers chapter 12 and the way that Moses is described as the meekest of all men. And it's precisely on account of that that he, he can be given such great revelation without having his heart lifted up by it. And in the case of any ruler, the great danger will be pride, arrogance, um, vainglory, and it is the great qualification of the ruler that his heart is not lifted up. Um, I think we see that also in the qualifications of the kings in um, Deuteronomy, that his heart should not be lifted up above the, above his brethren. Right. So, if you take that as uh, the background to the the vision and the uh, the the humbling of Nebuchadnezzar, then in a sense, his humbling from man to beast is actually the Lord's way of qualifying him for the high rule that he was given. He was given this rule, but he didn't really have the the humility to hold it properly. And the Lord puts him through this uh, humiliation in order to make him a, 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 suitable, a suitable ruler over Babylon. It's uh, easy also to see a connection here, of course, with, with Jesus. And I think Elster called attention to the uh, temptation of Jesus. D- Satan takes him to a high hill and says, you know, here here it is. I've got it. I can give it to you. Just fall down and worship me. He says, no, basically, I've got another way of achieving this, and that's through service and through humility. So, we got in, in Philippians 2, Jesus being the exemplary king here because he gives himself. He pours out his life even unto death 
death on a cross, which he, which shows his humility and his lowly uh, service for his people. And then, therefore, God highly exalted him and gives him a name that is above every name. So you have that exemplified, I think, in our Lord. Mm-hmm. So Jesus is the greater Nebuchadnezzar. Yeah, right. It occurred to me, too, that the, uh, well, you you have the fulfillment of the dream comes when Nebuchadnezzar uh, is driven out from mankind. This is verse 32. He dwells with the beasts of the field. He's given plants or grass to eat like cattle. All that's been said in Daniel's interpretation that that's going to happen. And that will happen. That will last as long as these seven periods of time pass over him. But then verse 33 in, uh, includes some other descriptions of his appearance. <laughs> yeah. uh, he it repeats the eating cattle like grass, but then he's also has hair like eagles' feathers, nails like birds' claws. Uh, there's a uh, uh, at least one ancient version of the story of Daniel includes some reference to uh, uh, some fun, some feature that's compared to a lion. But even without that, I mean, you've got um, he's a man who's eating like a cow, a, a bull. And has hair like eagle, like an eagle. I mean, it feels like we're in cherub territory here. And there's a although he's being humbled, you know, if you think of if you think of uh, the ancient um, these ancient empires as being uh, functioning as kind of cherubic empires, guardian empires for Israel. In Nebuchadnezzar's humility, he's actually taking on this kind of composite angelic appearance uh, that that does reflect his actual vocation, which is to be the guardian of Israel. But couldn't this also just be a reference to the fact that these eagles are vultures? I I understand this could be translated vultures, that they're carrion beasts as well, uh, so that this is part of the curse. Uh, He's become become beastly, not just eating grass, but even feeding on other, other animals. Yeah. So almost a re- in the into the realm of the dead. That yeah. 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 Yeah, it could be that. But I'm always looking for cherubim. So when I when I see <laughs> when I when I see any hint, uh, I go for it. <laughs> what should we make of the that, Jew of Heaven? Yeah, I, I don't know. I was only going to say it's largely a bit of fun, but I've been reading the um, New Testament recently, like a Hebrew translation of the New Testament. And the term it uses for um, being drenched here, drenched with the dew of heaven, is um, the same word as I have for being baptized in in my translation, which is which is quite cool. So, um, I th- yeah, so you've got <laughs> baptism here, I think. Yeah. You're always looking for baptism. Aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Only for adults. Yeah. That, that was my first thought. This is this is one baptism story from the Bible that I didn't get into my book. That's that was my first thought. I think there's something interesting going on with the nails. Um, we've had kind of just now the mention of twelve months, which makes us think of Israel, and then the mention of nails and particularly long hair kind of brings to my mind at least Deuteronomy. 21, where we have this provision for female prisoners of war, and they are to um, shave their hair and to cut back their fingernails after they've mourned the death um, of their parents for a set time for a month, and, and then they're integrated into Israel's community. And I wonder if some of that stands in the background of uh, of, of this. Nebuchadnezzar is a prisoner of war, in, in a sense. He's waged war against uh, God, and he, he's a foreigner, but he's going to be integrated into God's covenant people here. 
Mm. In the, his commentary, Jim Jordan talks about this as uh, resembling also the Nazarite vow, where you have a long hair that uh, hair that's allowed to grow long and then shaved. That uh, is a kind of dedication to the Lord's service, and there may be some you know some overlap with the uh, the captive woman that you mentioned in Deuteronomy twenty one. Huh, right. It certainly seems that I mean he is um, he becomes a like a beast and um the beasts are those which flee from the tree and so at least at a very simplistic level it seems that part of him being like a beast here is just he's separated from the comforts of his mm-hmm. kingdom mm-hmm. his kingdom is a place of shelter and benefit and it provides benefits to its subjects but now nebuchadnezzar is ousted from his throne and and therefore he's just apart from all that and he's got to now sort of learn what it's like to um be a subject of of someone else rather than being at at the top of the tree Hmm. i wonder whether we're supposed to see something of the right connected with leprosy here here's someone who's been struck by god he's removed from human community he goes out in and you have the living bird going out into the open field, these sorts of things. The person who goes through the cleansing rite has to shave off all of their hair and bathe themselves in water. They return on the seventh day. And all of these sorts of things seem to be repeated here in some way. Hmm. I want to go back to Alistair's comment about or question about the uh, dew of heaven. We kind of batted back as a uh, just a reference to baptism. But I think within the story, first of all, it's dew from heaven. There are many references to heaven throughout the throughout the chapter. Uh, there's references to the God of heaven, references to the watcher who are descending from heaven. The tree is reaching up to heaven. So uh, this is obviously life giving, life giving dew that's uh, descending from the God of heaven. And it seems to me like you, it's putting us kind of back in the. Uh, it's mixing the tree imagery that we started with with the with the actual beast form that Nebuchadnezzar takes. Uh, and the fact that he's watered with the dew of heaven while in the beast form uh, suggests that uh, insofar as he's imperial tree, he's still being watered. God is still providing for him. And that means that from the stump that's left, there is, there's going to be a new growth. And that uh, I think the baptismal kind of imagery of new life, the death and resurrection kind of motif that you have with baptism, I think that's there. But within the, within the chapter, that seems like you're back in the plant imagery and that that gets mixed in with the animal imagery of the of this part of the chapter. Hmm. Built into that could even be an allusion to manna, which is likened to dew. And so, during this time in the wilderness, as it were, Nebuchadnezzar is sustained by God. Yeah, right. Yeah, good. Point. We could also think if you go back to the le- leprosy rite, the water, the fresh water, has to be sprinkled seven t- seven times over the person who's to be cleansed. And so this divine dew is the divine sprinkling by which he will be cleansed. And we should note it note that it is sprinkling rather than immersion. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that was that is the most important part of the dew of heaven, yes. I I have drenched in my translation. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Uh, after the seven periods of time, Nebuchadnezzar comes back to himself, and we uh, mentioned last time that uh, he returns to – the text returns to first-person declaration, verse 34, I, Nebuchadnezzar, speaking of himself. And he, he talks about his – not only uh, is he speaking in the first person, has some has, a, has self-consciousness and able to articulate that, 
but he explicitly says that his reason or his knowledge returns to him. And uh, that's quickly followed by the, by the fact that his majesty and glory return to him. His reason or his knowledge are the prerequisite for the glory of his kingdom. It's prerequisite for him uh, being an advisor to his counselors and consulting with them and so on. But that all turns on the fact that he raises his eyes toward heaven uh, and he begins to seek the God of heaven. That's the transition point from being a beast to a man. That's the transition point, point from being irrational, unknowing to being returning to the wise man. So, uh, you know, there's a, there's a kind of uh, bestiality that comes from rejecting the worship of God and turning our eyes from heaven and simply focusing on earth. And uh, reason returns and humanity returns and sovereignty returns and all our human capacities return only when we're directed to heaven. Yeah. Just a quick comment on Nebuchadnezzar's judgment. I mean, I don't at all want to downplay the sense in which this is a supernatural act of God. But at the same time, if you just think of Nebuchadnezzar as a character, it does seem that he's kind of ripe for judgment in many senses. He's not the most stable of guys, is he? I mean, in chapter two, you know, he wants to kill Daniel at one second, and then the next minute he's fallen at his feet in worship. And in chapter three, at the start of it, he wants everyone to bow before this image, and then he's going to throw people to the furnace if they kind of uh, say anything against the God of Israel. So he's a fairly, you know, up and down guy. And you might think also that, I mean, although he is hugely proud, um, he's got a lot to be proud of. You know, he has been singularly an incredibly powerful guy. He may well be paranoid about people who want to take his place from within his kingdom. And so you would think that he is ripe for the kind of breakdown and, and more that he goes through in this chapter. God has kind of set his feet in slippery places, as, as it were. And the, the chapter then kind of hangs together quite well in its context. Mm. But isn't your description, James, um, of Nebuchadnezzar pretty typical of any monarchical <laughs> ruler? I mean, I mean, you might want to bracket Queen Elizabeth, but um, <laughs> every, every other king seems to have this kind of chaotic character, this kind of uh, uh, right. I mean, I mean, there are some kings that are, aren't like this, but it seems pretty typical. And I and I'm I'm come back to this point. Uh, that um, the the watchers said in verse seventeen that the end the telos of all of this is so that the living may know that the Most High rules over the kingdom of men and gives it to whom He will and sets over it the lowliest of men. It seems to me like a lot of modern Christians, anyway, miss the point here that even civil rulers, maybe especially civil rulers. Uh, have to have this kind of attitude, posture, behavior, mentality, heart in order to rule well. And that is a gift from heaven and must be confessed to be so. So there's like a, a contemporary application here. If, if our rulers don't have this kind of posture before the God of heaven, then they're liable to judgment, and not just them, as we've seen, but their whole kingdom and everybody that everybody that depends on their kingdom. This particular story is one that has uh, resonance in the current context, particularly for um, Kanye West, who made a, an opera about it 
precisely because he identified with the key character of Nebuchadnezzar, someone who's lifted up in pride and perhaps few people more famous in our society for an ego and a sense of <laughs> importance, self-importance. But in his encounter with Christ, feeling that he fits in the role of Nebuchadnezzar, someone who's brought low as a result and humbled as a result of this encounter, but then also lifted up at the same time and established in a new way. And it is striking to me that this story still has such a profound resonance for certain people. Well, I was going to say that it, it strikes me significantly in this whole chapter, Nebuchadnezzar's kind of moment of insanity is coupled with his kind of when he's at the greatest of, of his pr proudness, I suppose. And um, there seems a natural connection there. I mean, pride is a form of insanity, basically, isn't it? Insanity is kind of my failure to perceive the world as it truly is. And my, my pride is my failure to perceive myself as I truly am. It, it's a, just a completely skewed view of reality and feel significant that those two things go together. And then the Nebuchadnezzar's um, rehumanization and worship go together insofar as, I mean, that is the core of humanity, isn't it? A, a, um, uh, a, a creature who worships his, his creator. And so there, there are a lot of, um, uh, you know, significant um, coupling together in here. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Mm -hmm.